Let's just go to him in prayer again. Heavenly Father, um, a great song for us just to keep in mind that this is your word and that we are to always be true to it, whether we are speaking it or whether we are listening to it and living it out. I pray, Father, that as we consider your word today, that you would use it for each person as you see fit. And we entrust that to you, Lord, and we appreciate the fact that if we are your followers then your spirit resides in us. You guide us with your word and through your word. The scriptures even tell us that when we came to know Christ as Savior, that, that the Holy Spirit himself, in essence, turned the light on. He made us be able to see and to understand. And so, Lord, that's what we desire today. For some practical lessons that that we can maybe even carry out this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So today we're going to consider Paul an example of godliness. Um, We can look at Paul's entire life and say that it was an example of godliness, obviously, life once he received Christ. But as we consider that, uh, I, I obviously want to look at some specific things from the book of Philemon. So as we consider you know, kind of where we're at, a while back I gave the illustration of a basic sewing technique called backstitching. Now, this is purely, uh, on my part, just something that I take from somebody's word for it. I'm not sure that I've done more than one stitch in my entire life. Uh, but I appreciate, again, the, uh, the ability that some folks have. Um, I'm going to give you an illustration here, and as I do that, I could not do what you even see in this picture. I couldn't do it. I know I couldn't. It would not look like this. But when we're talking about backstitching, you know, to kind of illustrate it, we begin with a segment of our study, just like you would your first stitch, right, or a series of stitches. And then we add another segment or stitch of our study, but then we backstitch, or go back and interconnect the segments of truth we are learning. I can see some of you. This is fascinating to you. (laughs) And we continue to follow the pattern until we're finished with our project. right? But we've interrelated the different things that we're talking about. And so that's just something that, that for whatever reason, is something that is just very important to me to do. And so... I say that partly because, you know, we've read the same scriptures for three weeks now, right? But we're going to continue to loop back into that. But we're also going to be looping back, um, stitching back into the book of Colossians. So let's remind ourselves the purpose of the backstitch in sewing material or stitching biblical truth together is to make it strong, is to strengthen it. And so that's why we do that. So last week we tied in how the instructions of Philemon were a personal, practical outworking of what Paul wrote to the church. In other words, the book of Colossians. How Paul desired them to grow in their Christian life. How Paul instructed them to treat one another. All of these applied to Philemon, but he particularly needed to apply love and forgiveness to 
very real and deep offenses. Onesimus had offended him. And so now he had to apply those things. We emphasize that the reunion between Philemon and his slave Onesimus was a real life and real time application of what Paul had written to the entire Colossian church. We can't emphasize enough that we must connect what we learn to how we live our everyday life. Okay, We need to make those connections. It is exactly what James had in mind when he wrote to us in James 1, 22-25 and said, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. But if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. In other words, he forgets what he looks like. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. So we are an understander of the word so that we are a doer of the work. All right? Yes, it is a doer of the word But in reality, doing the work of God is doing the word of God, okay? And so we cannot and should not be a forgetful hearer. So this short letter illustrates the doing in a very practical way. And so I ask you to continue to backstitch what what we've covered in Philemon, what you remember from the book of Colossians, and, and, and stitch these things together as we move along. So the first point we have here is the reason for Paul's plea. Now, again, this is going to still be a little bit of review, but we're going to be looking at it from a little bit different angle. So we've already established that Paul wrote to Philemon on behalf of Onesimus, a runaway slave who had also stolen from his master. The purpose of Paul's plea to Philemon had two aspects to it. The first one is that Paul desired that Philemon would exercise his faith and love. And we see this in verses 5 and 6. Hearing of your love and faith, which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints, that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. So that was his the first aspect to the purpose of his writing. The second one we see in, in um, verse 10 But Paul directly pleaded on behalf of Onesimus that Philemon would receive him back. And so he says, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains. Paul's plea was that Philemon would receive Onesimus back primarily because he was now a brother in Christ. He pleaded with Philemon to overcome the earthy, the earthly, with the spiritual. Right? Anything and everything that could have prevented Philemon from taking Onesimus back was there. He had every reason to say, I don't think so. You're on your own. Or, you know, I'm going to punish you, you know, whatever it might be. And he would have been within his appropriate rights to do that. Okay? But what we're going to spend the most time on this morning is the method of Paul's plea. What we do matters, but how we do what we do matters as well. That is particularly the case when it comes to our speech. 
God's word has some excellent things to say about how we should speak to one another. And I want to give you a, a sampling of verses with principles that will help us frame how we speak to one another. And this is going to kind of set up this idea of how Paul pleaded with Philemon. So the first verse we're going to look at, and I kind of have a headline for each one. Um, words are powerful. Look at, look at Proverbs 18.21. The first part of that verse says this, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Wow, that's, that is a very strong statement and a true statement. We all know that the saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, is bogus. Right? We say that as kids, almost in defiance, but we know it's getting through. Right? Words hurt, and they can hurt us very deeply. There are actually recent accounts, not that it's never happened before, but there are recent accounts of both spoken and written words that drove several young people to take their own lives. It's this verbal bullying, this verbal um, diminishing that takes place to the point where a young person doesn't even feel like they have anything to live for. Now, young people, please understand, uh, your friends, what they think of you, um, is, is not the be-all, end-all, all right? We, we have the Lord that we're answerable to, but you have a church here that loves you. You have families that love you. Please, please keep that in mind. Just a little aside there, right? But our words can also breathe life into one another, into the other person. We can revive their spirits by the words that we share. These are the kind of words that should characterize a child of God, and they are desperately needed in our world today. We, we all have experienced that. We've experienced the um, death-like words, right? And we've experienced what are like life-giving words. Now, I don't believe that Solomon had the gospel in mind when he said this. I'm not diminishing the good news of Christ. I'm simply saying that what we're talking about is is these, these reviving, these encouraging types of words, and then these things that just kind of take our spirit away, right? And we've, we've experienced both of those in our lives. Um, I don't think I need to take a, a, a poll here to ask you, which one do you prefer, <laughs> right? Well, what we prefer is probably what we should be delivering, especially when we have the Spirit of God in us. The next thing that we need to look at is that righteous people speak wisely and their words are beneficial. Proverbs 31 and 30, I'm sorry, 10, 31 and 32. The mouth of the righteous speaks forth wisdom, but the perverse tongue will be cut out. By the way, that's talking more about the penalty of the wrong kind of speaking. So it's just giving illustration. The lips of the righteous know what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked, what is perverse. Uh, just so we understand, perverse here means corrupted. And the word is in its plural form. So it's all different kinds of corrupted language. But when a person's heart is right, it will show in their speech. The next one comes from Ecclesiastes 10, 12. Wise people speak graciously. The words of a wise man's mouth are gracious, but the lips of a fool shall swallow him up. So if we kind of pause and think through this for a minute... A right heart leads to wise thinking. Wise thinking leads to wise speaking. 
and wise speech is expressed graciously. Gracious, gracious speech is evidence of a humble and loving heart. Let's look to the next one. Gracious speech is thoughtful. Proverbs 15, 23, the last part of that verse says, a word spoken in due season, how good is it? And then we see in chapter 25, a couple of verses, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. Like an earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold is a wise rebuker to an obedient ear. The first passage describes carefully chosen speech that considers the other person. The second describes words focused on benefiting the hearer. Wise and gracious speech is considerate, measured, and tactful in how it is expressed. This is totally different than manipulation and calculated speech, right? How I can change the dynamic of how I can get what I want out of what I'm saying. We could even throw flattery in there. At the end of Proverbs 25, 12, we see the word rebuke. Certain situations may require a rebuke, a stern correction. But even a rebuke should be delivered wisely and graciously. Both passages portray words that fit the occasion and are spoken properly as having great benefit, value, and beauty. Proverbs 18.13 A wise people are reasonably informed before drawing conclusions. The verse says, He who answers a matter before he hears it, it is folly and shame to him. Ever have that happen to you? Speaking before you know what the situation's about? Giving our opinion before we properly understand the circumstances is a sign of foolishness, not wisdom. It's okay to refrain from speaking about a situation until we're sure that we have an accurate understanding. And it might be wise not to even speak after we do have a proper understanding. We don't have to always say what we think. Wise people are reasonably informed before drawing conclusions. You know, one of the things that I struggle with as a pastor who is sometimes asked my advice about something is that I'm only getting one side. And sometimes we need to be careful the kind of advice we might be doling out when we don't know what's going on on the other side of the fence of that whole thing. Oh, yeah, let's rally around you, my friend. You should do this. And oh, yeah, you tell them. And ah. it's foolishness. It's shameful. But again, wise people understand the situation and then speak to what they understand. All right? And then lastly, here. <clears throat> The spiritually mature do not offend with their speech. James 3.2 For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Now, indulge me as I just give you a little bit of a paraphrased version of this. For we all sin, offend, in many things. If anyone does not offend in what he says, he's a spiritually, he is spiritually mature, able to bridle the whole body. 
So what does this verse tell us? No one is exempt from saying unthoughtful and sometimes stupid things that can hurt or offend somebody. We're all going to do it. Why? Well, because we're human and because we're sinful. I don't know that we always have a sinful intent, but sometimes, I don't know if you've ever had this happen, you're a little fatigued. You're worn down. Your patience is not where it should be. And you say something that you don't really mean to say, but you still say it, right? Other times, it's just out of pure selfishness. And there's all those little things in between, right? Sometimes we don't even know that we've offended somebody. We don't intend to do it, but maybe we've just said something that we shouldn't have said. I mean, it, it, it's all over the place, right? So all of us can and do hurt people intentionally and unintentionally with our words. But it's a sign of maturity when a person consistently avoids offending others with their speech. Now, the opposite is also true. Okay? So let me make two more practical points related to this. First, in our day and age, we need to qualify offenses as legitimate offenses. Um, there's a lot of examples that I can give, but I just want you to understand that because someone has a difference of opinion doesn't mean that you should be offended by it. Because someone has a different perspective on something or doesn't agree with you about something doesn't mean that that should be an offense to us. Second, whether we consider ourselves mature or not so mature or whether we intended to offend or not, when we are aware we've offended someone, we need to acknowledge the offense and ask forgiveness. That's also a demonstration of maturity. Make it right. Now, in all of this, one thing we need to remember, all of this leans heavily toward the person we're speaking to. It's weighted to what the other person is receiving not what we're perceiving. So it's not what we think is gracious. It's what we think they need to hear in a gracious fashion. Our speech really needs to be others-oriented if we're going to live wisely. All right? Now, I did want to give you an opportunity to write these principles down or take a screenshot. Sometimes I get yelled at after the service. No, just kidding. But you know, it's like, you went through those notes so fast. Well, here you go. But let, just for review, as we move into the rest of the message, let me just read these for you again. Words are powerful. Righteous people speak wisely and their words are beneficial. Three, wise people speak graciously. Four, gracious speech is thoughtful. Let's consider it. Wise people are reasonably informed before drawing conclusions, and the spiritually mature do not offend with their speech. Right? Again, they don't offend with their speech, but there are times when their speech might be firm, and we'll get to that in just a minute. So let's keep these principles in mind as we consider how Paul spoke to Philemon and encouraged him to heed his words. And as we do this, we're going to go back and forth between the next two points in your outline here. And it's how Paul determined to approach Philemon. 
and how Paul chose not to approach Philemon. So as we're talking about the method of Paul's plea, there really are two aspects to it. And I'm just going to say it again. How Paul determined to approach Philemon and how Paul chose not to approach Philemon. So let's kind of work down through the passage and see how he did this. Remember, this is, this is a tough thing. This is a, a, a surprise situation that Philemon is, and, and Onesimus are finding themselves in. Onesimus wasn't surprised. Philemon was, right? Philemon 8 and 9. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, am an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. So Paul says that he could have given Philemon a command, but he chose not to approach him in that way. So what would this command have been? Simply put, to order him to do exactly uh, what he felt he should, how he should treat Onesimus, right? I'm, I'm telling you, do this. Instead, Paul appeals to him to respond in love. And again, I think that when we think of the, the principles that we just heard, we, we can carry those things over. I'm not going to necessarily list them all the time, but some of these things we're going to point them out. And then let's contrast <clears throat> something that Paul said in both of his letters. It actually has to do with Paul's greeting. Look at Colossians 1.1. Now, this is the letter to the church. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. But now let's see. Uh, let's think about this for a minute. Paul greets the Colossian church in his God-given authority as an apostle, a sent one, because this is exactly how the Colossians needed to hear his encouragement and his warnings and his instructions. He wrote with authority. But how did he uh, present himself in his letter to Philemon? Philemon 1, Paul, a prisoner of Christ, and then the last part of Philemon's 9. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. We don't see him exerting his apostolic authority here. When he writes Philemon, he places himself on a comparable level as Onesimus, who was a fugitive slave. Paul is writing as a prisoner. Yes, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, but he still is not a free man. Just like Onesimus was not a free man. Can we all recognize the carefulness and deliberateness in Paul's speech? How about his humility? Wait a minute. Paul had authority. Paul knew the situation better than Philemon. He had the information. Paul was also a man of action. We see that in several other parts of Scripture. These are all true. But this is where Paul's godly character shines. He chose graciousness. Paul's communication fit the occasion. Looking at Philemon's 12 and 14, look at what he says here. I am sending him, that's Onesimus, back. You therefore receive him, that is my own heart, whom I wish to keep with me, 
that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel, but without your consent I want to do, to do nothing, that your good deed might not be by compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. Paul could have kept Onesimus with him and considered a way that his friend Philemon could minister to his needs. Paul didn't want to do anything without Philemon's consent, nor pressure him to do anything but coercing or obligating him. Instead, Paul is asking for Philemon's voluntary cooperation. Did he always do that in Scripture? No. But here it fits. And then we look at the next couple of verses in 15 and 16. For perhaps Onesimus departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So in case we might think that Paul's motives were selfish, that Onesimus would stay in Rome with him and serve him while he was in prison, Paul makes it very clear that his primary purpose is to reunite Philemon and Onesimus. He was simply speaking from his heart. Paul sees Onesimus' flight as part of God's plan for Onesimus receiving the gospel. And part of this purpose was so that Onesimus would return as a brother in Christ and not just a mere slave. Which then brings us to Philemon, Philemon 11. We're actually going back a little bit. It says, Onesimus once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. Part of Paul's plea was to describe how Philemon would actually benefit from the return of his slave. He understood this reunion might be a tough sell, so to speak, right? Take him back. I don't think so. Take him back, right? <laughs> so Paul wrote that Onesimus would be profitable to Philemon. Paul considered the perspective of the person he was speaking to, and he spoke from experience, not speculation. Onesimus had already been a great benefit to Paul, so he could testify for him. So we see that these words were fitly spoken. Philemon 17, also verses 19 and 20. So if you consider me your partner, receive Onesimus as you would receive me. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of you, your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Paul has been reasoning with Philemon. He has been pleading with Philemon. He has been appealing on behalf of Onesimus. But now he simply basically says this. My friend, will you please do it for me? That's what he's saying here. Will you do it for me? He says, I won't appeal to your spiritual debt to me. Paul could have played the, hey, the gospel came to you through me. He could have played that card. But he didn't. Now, he states it, and I don't know exactly, but I have to go with what Paul's motives has been the entire time here. His motives have been for the benefit of other people, not himself. That's exactly what he's saying it could have been about. Instead, he asked Philemon to refresh his spirit like he had for so many others and receive Onesimus back. Remember, that was one of the things that we read about Philemon, that he was a refresher of the people around him. 
And Paul wanted that same ministry to come back to him. So we see how Paul talked with and communicated with uh, Philemon. I also want to look at the emotional investment that Paul made. <clears throat> let's, consider, let's consider the emotional side of Paul's appeal. Now, you've seen some of it already, obviously, but we're going we're to take a look at some of that. Paul had a deep love and great compassion for Onesimus. We see this in Philemon 12. I am sending him back, that's Onesimus, you therefore receive him, that is, my own heart. I don't know how, how more personal someone can make it, especially, come on, a guy, right? This is Paul saying that. I mean, in our day and age, if I were to say, you know, hey, you know, uh, welcome my friend, welcome my own heart, I'd be like, oh, that's a little strong, isn't it? You know, it makes me a little uncomfortable. Hey, that's what he's saying. I mean, this is the depth of emotion that he's talking about here. He cares so much about Onesimus that he asked Philemon to receive him back as if he were welcoming Paul himself. Remember, runaway slave that ripped him off. He's asking Philemon to compare him to Paul, the one who has been secondarily working with all these churches through Epaphras and others to strengthen them and now is sending word to them by letter. Philemon 10, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains. Okay, this one's obvious, but he considered Onesimus, Paul considered Onesimus, to be a son in the faith. This wasn't just somebody that responded in a rally. There's nothing wrong with that, okay? And then he moved on to another city. This man was with him for a while. He discipled him. He was a son in the faith. Philemon 16, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So Paul called Onesimus a beloved brother, and really he said physically and spiritually. Isn't that interesting? Where Paul equates the two. It's like we're blood brothers, but we're also spiritual brothers. I mean, that's how close he was with him, and that's how close he wanted Philemon to be with this, what he finds out, is a new brother in Christ. New to him. Verses 18 and 19. But if he has wronged you or owes anything, put that on my account. I, Paul, am writing with my own hand. I will repay, not to mention to you that you owe me even your own self besides. And we already covered that part. But Paul demonstrates his concern for, concern for and commitment to Onesimus by his willingness to pay Onesimus' debt. Paul was willing to take on the expense if that would help reconcile these two men. Now think about that. Paul was willing to have it cost him something to see these two men reconciled. I've even had someone ask me, because they, they noted this uh, previously, and they were like, what kind of money did Paul have? Well, I, I don't know, you know, Bank of Rome, you know, what account he had or anything like that. I, I don't know. 
Um, he, he may have had some resources. We don't know. But the point is this. He was willing to be indebted to Philemon to cover the debt of Onesimus. He wasn't arguing whether or not it was right or wrong. He wasn't arguing whether or not it was there or whether it wasn't. I think he knew that there was a debt. But he didn't want anything to be in the way of these two men reuniting. Let's also note that Paul had great respect for Philemon. We already talked about how Paul approached Philemon as one uh, who was in prison, right? So there was some humility there. Paul also respected Philemon's rights as the owner of Onesimus and as the one who was wronged. We, we know that he also uh, commended him for his character earlier in the book. We, we covered that just briefly today. And we cannot forget that, Paul, he, that he knew his uh, faithfulness, as I just mentioned. Now, he, he loved the church. He loved the Lord. This was something that Paul knew about. And so then we see in Philemon 17, If then you count me as a partner, receive Onesimus as you would me. Paul again shows deference and humility toward Philemon. He makes another statement of great respect by considering Philemon as his equal, as his partner in ministry. But there's another aspect to this that we don't want to miss. Paul is also asking Philemon to consider him a partner. As he's doing that, he's asking him, Philemon, to consider Onesimus a partner. Do you see that? Philemon, we're equals. It doesn't matter my, my position, we're equals. I, I want you to give Onesimus the same thing. But again, he did it in a respectful way. So just briefly, I also want to mention Paul's confidence in Philemon. I think I might have the wrong verse here, but it tells us this. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. We won't spend nearly as much time here, but there are a couple of important observations to make. How did we describe the reunion of these two men last week? Let's just set this up very briefly. Here's Onesimus. We don't know how much time has taken place, but he's left his master. That in and of itself is a great loss. Onesimus himself as a piece of property. Now, let's also review just very briefly. Some of you may not have been here. This was a different type of slavery in many ways, not in all ways, than the slavery that we understand. Uh, at, at, in some cities, a full third of the population were slaves. And some of them had pretty high-ranking you know, positions. They were doctors and educators and lawyers and, and accountants. Okay, so, so this was a class of people that it was common. All right. So here we have this slave who left. There's his own inherent worth as a slave. He cost something. Then there was the work that he was supposed to do that Philemon was robbed of. And then on top of that, he took 
something of Philemon's. And we even mentioned he had to have some resources to travel all the way to Rome, right? So, so we've set this all up. He comes back with two letters in his hand because the church met in Philemon's home. One was to the Colossian church and one was to Philemon himself. He and Tychicus knock on Philemon's door. I'm here, right? And what term did we use? Awkward, <laughs> right? Uncomfortable, uh, right? That, that, that's, that's where Philemon found himself. Oh, I have a letter for you. It's from Paul. Can you read that? Like fast? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so, <laughs> With that context, Paul had every confidence on Philemon's Christian character. He believed this man would demonstrate the faith and love he was known for by, doing, by, by acting the same way toward Onesimus. And Paul was confident that Philemon's love and compassion, graciousness and forgiveness would surpass his expectations. What a bold thing to say. So, so right here's what Paul says. You know, Philemon, I've, I've, I've given you a rock-solid argument. Like, I've, I've connived and I figured things out, and I have just, you know, thrown at you an argument that you just can't come back from. So do what I say. Is, is that what we see communicated here? No. We see a man on a faraway land, right, who has all the credentials and authority that he has to have, but comes to him as a prisoner, comes to him asking him, please partner with me. And here's, here's what I want you to do. I want you to do it for Onesimus. I want you to do it for the Lord. I want you to do it for me. But in all of that, he says, and I know your character. Man, I, I know your character. And so even though, you know, I don't know exactly how you're going to respond, right? We can see that. I know that you're going to, you're going to do more than what I can even think you would do. More than what I would expect of anybody. Wow. So where do we take this? Let's remember, we're talking about Paul, an example of godliness, right? How he talked with Philemon, how he um, interceded and pleaded for Onesimus, how he wanted there to be harmony in the church, even though it was a very difficult situation. So how can we learn from Paul in dealing with one another? One thing for certain is that we know Paul was writing the word of God when he wrote to Philemon. We have it. It's here. Therefore, this letter contains principles that we need to live by. It was very personal, but it's very practical for us. So we can learn from Paul's gracious and humble speech. How so? In what ways? When we're frustrated. Right? When people don't live up to our expectations. When we're flat out offended. 
is going to happen sometimes, right? We, we talked about the fact that <laughs> we're going to offend people, sometimes intentionally, sometimes not. Well, if we do that, then chances are we're going to be offended at some point. Maybe intentionally, maybe not. How are we going to respond? What are our words going to be like? How about when problems or misunderstandings arise? Does that ever happen? We've got a group of guys here. We're going to be working on the church, right? We've got this project, you know what I mean? And we're all like, yeah, we're, we're men. And so I've got this way that I think we ought to do this project. And you've got this way that you think you ought to do this project. And I'm just going to conk you on the head with a hammer because you're stupid. No! Now, that's how guys communicate, by the way. No, it's not. Right? Now, I'm going to very carefully pick on the ladies, too. Be careful of your words after I use this illustration. <laughs> We're going to have a ladies' activity at the church. And somebody wants it to run a certain way, and somebody else wants it to run a certain way, but... This person who wants to run a certain way doesn't like how that other person wants to run a certain way, and so they're going to tell other people that they're not running it the right way. And maybe one of those people, well, I'll just give her a piece of my mind. <laughs> There's all kinds of ways we can offend each other. Now, obviously, it goes a little bit beyond communication, but didn't we start off the fact that really communication comes from character? That's what we've got to make sure that we're working on first. Because we can only shave and fudge our words so much. What's in the heart is going to come out. And that's what we talked about from the beginning. The wise person, right, is really a godly person. So the godly person who exercises wisdom, is going to exercise graciousness, is going to make their words fit, is going to consider the other person, and on and on it goes. So when we find ourselves in difficult situations, what comes out of our mouth is going to be from wisdom. Should be. And should be weighted toward what the other person needs. Right? Now, let's face it, there's all kinds of positive ways that we can and should do that as well. And we don't want to miss that. Because there were some positive things that Paul was instructing Philemon to do. Right? Also, if Paul expected Philemon to exceed his expectations in having a wise and gracious response to Onesimus, then in principle, God expects us to do the same thing. Now, I don't know that we can exceed God's word. But my point is, is that we should strive for the exceptional. That's not prideful. That's not, oh, how can I outdo everybody else? It's really, how can I be as humble as I can be? How can I be as gracious as I can be? Remember what the scriptures say about the fruit of the spirit? Against such there is no law. You know what a law is? A law is a limitation, right? I, I personally feel like in most roads, there should be no signs that tell you how fast you can go. 
I think I should be able to determine, you know, I think this road can handle it. I can handle it. I need to get somewhere. Right? It reminds me of the commercial where there was a man who was going through a toll booth, right? And it was all about how he, you know, could have a nice smooth life. And it was like Bob's toll booth, right? He's the only Bob can go through there, right? Everybody else is all backed up. He's like, right through, right? That's what we want, okay? No limitations. Not quite what we're talking about here, right? But when we're talking about God's character, he doesn't put limitations on patience. There's no laws against that. Well, you can only be so patient, then you can blow your stack. You can only love so much, then just stop loving, right? Because we have instructions in the Word of God, right? Here's when you don't love. We don't have that. There, there are no limitations on living out the fruit of the Spirit. So you may face circumstances as trying as Philemon faced. Boom, bam, right there, in your face. you got to respond now. How will you respond to your brother or sister in Christ? Now, I think that we should make some application beyond that, if, if not for anything else, for the testimony of Christ. But Paul is speaking brother to brother, Christian to Christian. So that's where I want the emphasis to be this morning and to ask you, how will you respond to your brother or sister in Christ when things aren't just right? Now, we can say, well, Onesimus, he became a Christian, and, and he, he obviously grew in everything. There was still something between him and Philemon. Folks, that didn't get eliminated. That was the whole reason for the appeal. We can't lose sight of that. There were still issues. And as I said before, we don't know how Philemon responded. But let's go back to what Paul said. Even, you know, I think he made an assumption to a degree that at least Philemon would receive him as a brother in Christ, right? But Paul makes sure that Philemon understands, look, if you hold him to what he owes you, which again, that was his right as the owner. We're not talking about personal rights. We're talking about the fact that he owned him and he was stolen from. He says, if, if, if you hold him to that, not the same as forgiveness, right? If you hold him to that, I want to take that on myself. I want to eliminate that as a barrier, right? But I know you're going to do more than I expect. So Paul, this godly man, writes this very humble letter. And it's kind of like he just writes it and just sends it off. It's, it's like our emails today, right? Type, 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 send. It just goes. He didn't know what was going to happen with it. He had an idea. He did everything he could to make sure that there was a good outcome. 
partly because he considered the person that he was writing to. And he communicated in the ways that we see in Scripture that we're supposed to communicate. Will we commit to doing that? Folks, we need we need unity. We need to be there and ready for people who are going through difficult times because we do and some of us are. We can and should be a refreshment to one another with what we say. And it should be something that we are actually extending out for the benefit of those around us. Why? I believe ultimately is because God gave us his word. And we'll use that in two different aspects. The word made flesh, the very expression of who God is, Jesus Christ, came, lived, and died for us, and rose again. But then also, he gives us this letter. I'm talking about the whole book. So that we know how to live. And part of that is how we use our speech. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word tells us that when there are many words that, and I'm paraphrasing, that sin kind of comes along with that. And this doesn't mean that someone's talkative or not. It's when we're not speaking properly, when we're just talking and not thinking through what we're saying. So, Father, I pray that we'll, we'll guard our mouths. We've talked about some negative things this morning, Lord, but we've talked about a lot of very positive things from your word, too. And I pray, Father, that we'll focus on the mending and the healing, the ministering that we can do by what we say and how we say it. I pray, Father, that we will even diffuse situations by our humility and our graciousness. And even when it comes to rebuke, to where maybe we might need or we might need to correct someone in a strong fashion. Lord, even that you tell us, it's, it's beautiful language when done properly. So, Heavenly Father, I, I pray that we'll see your principles through here. Again, a very practical expression of what you expected, how you expected this church to, to live. And here we have this key person in Philemon, the, 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 the host of the church in his home, a, a key person who obviously had a ministry in many people's lives. And Paul's very careful at how he speaks to him very deliberate, very gentle, and considerate. Lord, what an example. What an example of godliness. An example of Christ-likeness. We ask you to forgive us when we don't make the effort to speak wisely. When we 
or maybe a little uncaring with what we say. But Father, I also pray that when we're the recipients of something that is either appropriate and firm or not so appropriate, that we'll respond in a way that also shows our godly character. And we ask all this, not only in Christ's name, but for his glory. Amen.